Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is a crowd podcast. What would you do as a parent? You're in the sea, your two kids alongside you, on holiday, all smiles and high fives. And then you see it, a speedboat hurtling towards you. Propellers thrashing the water, 200 metres away, 100, on you. Who do you think of first? What does instinct do? Get you out the way, or them? What stays with you in that impossible moment? There's so much stuff that doesn't make sense about the death of Kirsty McCall, but then there's so much that doesn't make sense about her life. The pop star who doesn't want to be a pop star, who's not bothered about being on TV or being famous, who writes perfect pop songs but only has a few pop hits. The kid with a legendary dad and the woman with a famous husband who just wants to be herself, not someone else's daughter and someone else's wife. The singer with a voice that everyone loves, that everyone wants on their records, who's terrified of singing on stage who tells everyone everything about herself in her songs and then can't sing them. You know it's Kirsty when you see her. Red hair, red lipstick, a look on her face that says, don't mess me about. Something in her eyes that says, they always do. You know it's Kirsty when you hear her, a voice that's always layered on itself, harmonies on top of other harmonies, A sort of sweetness and a shimmer and a spikiness too. A sadness. She's always on the edge of something. A new sound, a new hit, a good time, a big night. When you're up till four in the morning, drinking and talking and smoking. A big crash when it all seems hopeless. When the songs dry up and the bad luck comes on again. It's like every year's going to be her year. Everyone feels it. When she's 18 and comes up with the sort of song people spend a lifetime trying to write. When she's in her late 20s and sings on the one Christmas record no one ever gets sick of. When she's closing in on 40 and comes up with maybe the best album she's ever done. But it's never quite her year. Something always gets in the way. Bad luck, dodgy record labels, bad decisions. It doesn't make sense to anyone. 
then it ends in a way that makes sense to nobody. Not a rock and roll death, not drugs or drink or burning out. Not in London where she's born and lives. Out of nowhere, out of a clear blue sky. It's an accident. That's how it's reported. A horrible thing you don't even want to think about. And then more stuff comes out. And the story changes. Conspiracies and denials, cover-ups and doubt. This should be a sweet story about a sweet girl. A story about hopes and regrets, but about happy endings too. But there's nothing neat in the story of Kirsty McCall. And maybe that's why everyone cares so much. Why her death touches so many, so deeply. With Kirsty, you look for answers, and you can't always find them. Always on the edge of something, never quite there. There's always music around when Kirsty's a kid. It's just not the right music. A dad's a working-class boy from Salford, working-class hero, sets up a radical theatre or gritty realism, serious stuff, sings folk songs, angry rebel ones. Ewan McCall is all about principles, as long as they're his. All about what's real, as long as it's his version. When Kirsty's born, he's already set up home elsewhere, another woman, another kid. Pop music? Ewan hates pop music. Music's not meant to be fun. You're not meant to make money. Here's what Ewan's like. He rants about the Beatles, about the Rolling Stones, says the only thing they're rebelling against is melody, coherence, shirts with buttons, says he can't even understand the words. He says he's proud of the fact there's no sunshine in his songs, no nightingales. Dirty old town, that's one of his. Lyrics about gasworks and canals and factory walls. Yep, he's a grump. There's a story that Bob Dylan phones his house, wants to speak to this folk music legend, the oracle, the original. Ewan picks up the receiver and tells him to fuck off. So Kirsty grows up with a mum, Jean, without Ewan, but still in his shadow, wondering if she's done something wrong, why he seems so angry with her. She's quiet, Kirsty, keeps it all in. She's got terrible asthma, horrible allergies. She's often ill as a kid, misses loads of school. She thinks about stuff, watches other people, works it out. She teaches herself to read. When she's eight, she's on a show called The Problem with Gifted Children. Not the best title, but that's how she starts thinking about herself too. She listens to music and sings along and works it out. All the vocal harmony parts to Good Vibrations by the Beach Boys. All those layers and mad diversions. She learns the violin and classical guitar, borrows an electric one at school. They talk about her living an interior life and the sadness is always there. A sense she sees stuff that others don't. What does she get from Ewan? No obvious love, not the folk music. Just a feeling. Men will let you down. They'll mess you around. She thinks, if I can get through to being an adult without killing myself, I'll have done well. So it makes sense, doesn't it, that Kirsty joins a punk band when she leaves school. 
They're called drug addicts, spelt with an I-X at the end, very punk. A stage name? That's Mandy Doubt. Same again. They're very punk and pretty average, but she's good. The best thing about them by miles. So she signs to a record label, a cool one, maybe the most punk one of all. Stiff records of the outsiders. They've got the damned, Ian Jury, Elvis Costello. They do t-shirts with their logo and this slogan, if it ain't stiff, it ain't worth a fuck. They ask for a song and Kirsty comes up with something, well, impossible. It's not punk, it's definitely not folk. It's pure pop, what she calls jangly, luscious. It's like the Shangri-Las, like Phil Spector. It's like the best girl band of the 60s, but it's all from one person. An 18-year-old girl whose day job is answering the phones for Exchange and Mark magazine in Croydon. It's happy and sad at the same time. A tune you can whistle after hearing it once, lyrics that bite you on the arse as they go by. They don't know. That's what it's called. There's definitely sunshine in there, but there's realism too. You can hear her, and you can hear all the best bits of pop that she's taken in. You can hear the Beach Boys harmonies, the layers of voices, just like good vibrations. When she's in the studio, she hears things others don't. She sings one line and then walks over to a new position and sings it again. She moves the mic and does another, layering it up. Then she says, that's it, let's go to the pub. It's all over the radio when it comes out, that perfect pop song. This perfect crescendo when the music stops and she just sings high and clear like polished glass. Baby. Only ABBA and Wings are getting more airplay that week. It's a hit, of course it is. But this is Kirsty, so it isn't. There's a strike on. The people who distribute records for independent labels like Stiff for Outsiders are all out. So they can't get the record from the warehouses to the shops, so no one can see it, no one can buy it. It'll take four years for it to be a hit. And then it'll be for someone else. Tracy Ullman's a comedian who's getting famous. She remembers the song, covers it, gets Kirsty to do the backing vocals, all those layers of harmonies, gets her to sing the perfect crescendo. Baby. It gets to number two in the UK and number eight in the States. Tracy Ullman's on her way. She'll get her own TV show in the States. There's a bit in it where they show a new cartoon called The Simpsons. That's the start of that, too. Everyone winning from Kirsty's song, except Kirsty. So she writes another one for Tracy Ullman. It's called You Broke My Heart in 17 Places. And that's a hit, too. For someone else. She gets one in the end, a hit of her own. Another melody you can whistle, another lyric that bites you on the arse. There's a guy works down the chip shop, swears he's Elvis. That gets her on top of the pops, lets her smuggle in that happy sadness. Her backing band's in cowboy hats, like it's pastiche country, fake rock and roll. She's smiling and singing something else. He's a liar and I'm not sure about you. People call it a novelty hit, not a great song, one you can't forget, something easy, fake. 
so she starts doubting herself. And when she's singing it live to promote it, it starts to overwhelm her. She sings in a deadpan way. That's her style. The bites in the words. But she thinks the audience want more. And she can't give it to them. She's shy. She's living that interior life. Doesn't want to make a fuss. Doesn't want to be embarrassed. She says, I couldn't do all that screaming and bleeding on the carpet. So she bites her nails on the way to gigs until her fingers are red and sore. She feels sick. She worries about how she looks. She loves pop, but pop wants women to look a certain way, not curvy, not like she's off to the pub. She says, you're either a dolly bird bimbo or a soapbox sociologist. There's no in between. She starts thinking, I want to be a superstar, but anonymous. I want the music, but not the music business. Why should all my records sound the same? She's trapped. The one thing that makes her feel whole is music. A mum says it to her one time. If you get so worried, Kirsty, why don't you go and do something else? And she starts crying and says, But I love this. I can't think of anything I'd rather do. She slips into the background, does her own stuff, but more for other people, singing backing vocals for the Stones, the Smiths, Van Morrison, Talking Heads. She sings for Simple Minds, starts hanging out with their producer, Steve Lillywhite. He's fun, big name, lots of booze and weed and good times. He seems to like her for who she is, not what she could be. When she's in the studio, he understands what she's trying to do. He understands the harmonies, how she gets there. She does a cover of New England by Billy Bragg and Steve produces it. All happy and sad at the same time, the voice is clear as polished glass. I loved you then as I love you still. I put you on a pedestal, you put me on the pill. That's what she sings. It's better than Billy's, even Billy says that. He writes her an extra verse and her and Steve work. He's up when she's up. When she's down, he's still around. They get married. Bono does a reading in the church. She comes off the pill, gets pregnant, has one son, has another. And when Steve produces the Pogues, that works out too. Here's the thing about the Pogues. They're folk music, but not really. They're punk. They're a mess a lot of the time. But it suits them. They've even had a hit with one of Ewan McColl's songs, Dirty Old Town. Made him a lot of money. Imagine how he feels about that. And they've got a song, a sort of Christmas one, but not the sort of Christmas ones that everyone else is doing. It starts in the drunk tank. It becomes an argument. It carries on through alcoholism and heroin abuse. There's the fairy tale of New York. You know it. Everyone knows it. Years on, it gets voted Britain's favourite ever Christmas song. It'll go into the top 20 at 16 different Christmases, sell a million and a half copies. But until Kirsty, it's nothing. It's been sitting around for two years going nowhere. It doesn't work. Then Steve Lillywhite takes it home and Kirsty does the vocals, layers them up sings about a man who's let her down, who's messed her around. 
They never actually sing it together, Kirsty and Shane McGowan, the band's frontman. They don't have to. Kirsty gets it. Shane gets Kirsty. Here's something he says later. He says she knows the exact right measure of viciousness and femininity and romance to put into it. He says, In operas, if you have a double aria, it's what the woman does that really matters. The man lies. The woman tells the truth. You scumbag, you maggot. That's what Kirsty sings. Happy Christmas, you arsehole. It gets to number two, not number one. The Pet Shop Boys have done a high-energy disco cover of Always On My Mind. Shane says a very Shane thing. We were beaten by two queens and a drum machine. But it keeps selling year after year. It's the most played Christmas song of this century. It's spent almost 100 weeks in the charts. Only two other songs have ever beaten that. And the best line of all? The one everyone knows, the one everyone bellows back? That's when Shane sings, I could have been someone. And Kirsty takes a look at him, all deadpan and realism, and sings, Well, so could anyone. Because she knows. That's how things should be for Kirsty McCall. That's the narrative. She has highs, she has crushing lows. She plays a new album to her dad, Ewan, and he asks her to turn it down. Then he asks for a sheet with the words on. She loves her boys, but the marriage is too busy, too boozy. Steve Lillywhite's always flying off places to produce massive acts. You too, Morrissey, Travis. And it's still one of the first things she gets asked in interviews. What's it like to be the wife of Steve Lillywhite and the daughter of Ewan McCall? So she writes lyrics about it that bite you on the arse. She sings, I've been the token woman all my life, the token daughter, the token wife. She separates from Steve, looks after her boys, does an album that's all Cuban influences, changing her sound when she wants to. And the next bit of her story makes no sense. You can see some deaths coming. There's a grim sort of logic to them. Someone who won't stop drinking, won't stop hammering coke or smack or something else that always ends up the same way. But that's not Kirsty. This part of her story is like a bad jump cut in a film. A flip from music biopic to horror. There's nothing that comes before that could tell you this was next. It's December 2000. She's been working hard. She wants her break. Her boys are teenagers now, 13 and 15. So she takes them scuba diving in Mexico. The reefs are amazing. Fish like you've never seen. Corals, turtles, everything. No motorboats unless they're dive boats. No one going more than four knots. That's the federal law. They do one dive, come up laughing, high-fiving, swim to the dive boat, anchored over the reef, put on fresh oxygen tanks, go back down. They're with a local instructor, a man who knows the reefs maybe better than anyone else. He's done more than 10,000 hours underwater. And this time, as the four of them come back to the surface, the instructor hears a roaring noise. He looks up. There's a speedboat racing straight at them. He screams, he yells, he waves his arms, thinks, oh my God, they're going to hit us. 
the boat is on them. He can feel the propellers sucking him under, tries to push himself out of the way, grab the eldest boy. There's a clang, a big crack. He thinks, that's the propellers hitting someone's tank. This is how the youngest son remembers it. He comes to the surface first. His mum's next to him. He can't stop grinning. He says, wow! His mum smiles back, says, great! Then he hears her scream. She pushes him backwards and feels something hard hit him, sees propellers ripping up the water where he's just been. The sea around him is red. That's what he sees next. He thinks, I'm swimming in mum's blood. The instructor is surrounded by it. Blood in the water, on his hands, in his hair, thinks, I've lost my legs. Looks down, sees his flippers, realises he's okay. And then he realises, Kirsty's dead, isn't she? This is what they see on the dive boat. McCall floating face down in the sea. The autopsy talks about a huge cut that nearly splits her in two. It describes her being opened up from next to a waist, about her left leg almost being severed. The police arrest a deckhand on the speedboat. He's admitted being at the controls, gets convicted of culpable homicide, is sentenced to two years, ten months in prison. It's an accident. That's how it's reported. The most horrific thing, something that makes no sense. But an accident. And then it turns once more. The deckhand never goes to prison. His sentence is switched to a fine. A peso for every day he would have spent in jail. 61 pounds. The court orders him to pay compensation to Kirsty's sons. That's calculated on the minimum wage in the local area. It comes to less than 1,500 quid. A campaign is launched. Kirsty's family are friends, loads of the musicians she's worked with. There's one thing they want to know. What really happened out there? Here's what they find out. The speedboat is owned by a millionaire businessman. He runs a massive chain of supermarkets, powerful man. He's on board that day, so are his two young sons, his daughter-in-law and his 11-month granddaughter. He tells police his boat was going at one knot an hour. He says it was in open water, not in the restricted area. But other witnesses say something else. They say they saw his boat speeding. They say the deckhand wasn't at the controls, that he ran from the back of the boat to the front after the accident. One knot an hour is slow. At that speed, it would have taken almost 20 seconds to pass Kirsty and her boys and the instructor. They could have swum out the way. They could have held on to the boat. They could have climbed in. The Justice for Kirsty campaign discovers other stuff. They say the instructor overheard the millionaire telling police afterwards he'd been at the wheel of the boat, not the deckhand. 
They say the deckhand was given money and a house to say it was him instead. The deckhand statement? That makes no sense either. He admits he doesn't know what a knot is. He doesn't know the speed limit. He can't even tell them which is his right hand and which is his left. He has no license to drive a speedboat. The only one on board who does? The millionaire. And he's nowhere near this. Not now. What do you think of as a parent in that impossible moment? What does instinct do? It's Kirsty's mum, Jean, who organises the campaign, who pushes for answers. None of it is easy. She's in her late 70s, not much money left behind. She's got a ground floor flat in West London, and it's all photos of Kirsty and awards on the walls and emails from fans and supporters. Nine years she spends trying to get justice, to find out what really happened, to get to that Mexican millionaire who escaped from it all. What's the last thing Kirsty does? Try to protect her children, push them away from the path of that boat. The campaign is Jean's way of doing the same, looking after a daughter. That's the instinct for a parent. She thinks the millionaire believes it's all about money. It isn't. Not for a mother. She thinks all I ever wanted was the truth and an apology. They never come, not really. And so when the Pogues invite her to their Christmas show at the Brixton Academy and they play Fairy Tale of New York in tribute to Kirsty, her mum waits for the words that Kirsty would have sung. She says, When I hear those words, you scumbag, you maggot, I'll think of that man. She makes plans for a memorial out in Mexico, a stone carved in the shape of a bird on the beach where Kirsty's body was brought to shore. The date of her death, an inscription. Kirsty McCall, who was killed by the speedboat, Percolito. She thinks, every time that man goes by, he should remember. She thinks, I hope the local people will be kind enough to put some flowers on it. I hope the mothers would do that for me. Seventeen years after the accident, the week after Jean passes away, just after her 94th birthday, it happens. A bench, out there in the beach. The carving of the bird. A lyric from a song Kirsty wrote called Mother's Ruin. It says, When you go, let me dream that I go with you. There's another memorial too, another bench, another place people get together to think about Kirsty and talk about Kirsty. It's in Soho Square, just round the corner from Tottenham Court Road. Middle of town, but quiet, big trees and flapping pigeons. Very London. It's her birthday on October the 10th. So every year, on the nearest Sunday, everyone goes there, sings her songs, has a few drinks. The perfect pop songs. The only Christmas song everyone likes. The harmonies and the spikiness and the happy sadness. That's what they think about when they think about Kirsty. 
This episode was written by Tom Fordyce and performed by me, Emma Clark. It was edited by Charlie Frost. For research, we read The One and Only by Karen O'Brien and Sun on the Water by her mum, Jean. We watched the documentary Who Killed Kirsty McColl and used the archives of The Telegraph, Guardian and Mojo magazine. You probably want to listen to some Kirsty now. Of course you do. So start with They Don't Know, her version, not Tracy Ullman's. Listen to New England, hers, not Billy Bragg's. And then, because you know fairy tale of New York inside out, finish with her cover of Days by the Kinks. Happy and sad at the same time. The music we used in this episode is from our partners at BMG Production Music. If you want another podcast, go and find our episode about Karen Carpenter or George Michael. Or if you're a sports fan, we have another series called Death of a Sports Star, where you'll find episodes about Phil Hughes, Payne Stewart and Flojo, the fastest woman of all time. There'll be a new Rockstar episode out next Thursday, and that one's about Amy Winehouse. Thanks for listening. Crowd Network, a place where you belong. Welcome to us talking about our podcast for a minute. What's the name of that podcast? That's Axe to Grind. Uh, and right now you're going to be getting a little a little taste of it, right down to the shaky microphone and all. <laughs> and my name's Bob. And my name's Patrick. And usually we're joined by Tom. Tom's the best. Tom has a real grown-up job that requires him to be at work. But we talk about decidedly not-so-grown-up things like... Hardcore music and things that people that like hardcore music tend to like. So that could be the latest shows, uh, revisiting classic material, talking about the new classics, um, all the little dorm room nonsense that you imagine from a niche music podcast that, that you either love, want to love, or hate. Yeah, imagine all the emotions that you have towards a genre that, that uh, has impacted your life. Uh, and then condense them down to an hour to two hours a week. So triangulate your speakers. Think about jumping off the bed, singing along, dancing like an idiot, and listen to Axe Grind Podcast. Hello out there! Hi, I'm Hal Schwartz. And I'm Flynn McClain. We want to tell you about our podcast, None But the Brave, which is dedicated to taking a deep dive into the work of Bruce Springsteen. We're currently in our fifth season. Our latest episodes focus heavily on Bruce's 2024 tour and have featured such guests as Anthony Castrovitz from MLB Network and Barstool's Kirk Minahan. We're also covering the 40th anniversary of Bruce's biggest record, Born in the USA. And as part of that, coming up this week, Uproxx cultural critic Stephen Hyden returns to the show for a fascinating hour-long conversation about his new book, There Was Nothing You Could Do, Bruce Springsteen's Born in the USA and the End of the Heartland. To listen, you can go to our website, mbtbpodcast.com, or subscribe on your preferred podcasting platform. We hope to see you further on up the road. Thank you so much! We'll be seeing you! Hey, this is Steve Choi, host of the Musicians Guild Podcast, part of the Sound Talent Media Podcast Network. 
Within the four walls of the Musicians Guild, we'll be discussing the habits, idiosyncrasies, experiences, and general psychology of my friends and peers all involved with music in various capacities. Listen and subscribe at soundtalentmedia.com.